biology. 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 Hello and welcome to another episode of the HSC Biology Podcast. Today we are starting on the inquiry question, why are epidemiological studies used? And the first dot point for this one, we're not going to go through in detail because we did it last week pretty much anyway. And that is the analyzed patterns of non-infectious diseases in populations, including their incidence and prevalence. And that's because those kind of dot points are going to be ones where you're collecting and interpreting data from graphs and tables and charts. So make sure that you are practicing that. How to interpret um, patterns is the specific one for that dot point there. So the dot point we're going to look at now is investigate the treatment, management and possible future direction for further research of a non-infectious disease using an example from one of the non-infectious disease categories listed above. So this is just looking for one example from the um, examples above, which were nutritional, environmental, uh, cancers, and genetic. And we're going to look at skin cancer specifically for this one. It's one that a lot of students already know about. They know how it's caused, um, and they know some things about treatment. So it's always good to pick things that a student might know. Uh, it helps them to construct answers. So let's take a look at the treatment and management options for skin cancer. And the first one that students will, again, be able to understand quite easily is surgery. And surgery is quite often the most useful way to get rid of skin cancer because if it is at a level where it hasn't got down to the bloodstream, hopefully they can remove the entire growth and therefore none of the cancer cells will continue to divide. So surgery is pretty effective. Now, if the cancer cells do manage to get down to the bloodstream and cause issues, then at that point it might be useful to do something like radiation therapy. So radiation therapy is the use of high energy rays like x-rays to kill cancer cells. And this might be useful when, say, surgery can't be done for some reason on a certain melanoma. And sometimes they even use it on uh, melanoma patients where they have a certain type of a skin cancer. And after surgery, just to make sure they've got rid of all the cells, they do use radiation. They will use it for a number of other treatments like on lymph nodes or if it comes back, it can be reused. But radiation therapy is quite often used after skin cancer has got into the blood. Now, the third one we'll look at is a bit of a crossover between a future treatment and a current treatment, and that is targeted therapy. So targeted therapy is using specific drugs to stop certain proteins that help the cancer to grow. And in the case of melanoma, in about half of all melanoma cells, they will have a change in a BRAF gene. And the BRAF gene is a gene that codes for a protein that helps them to grow. Now, the idea is that when you use targeted therapy, there are certain drugs that can target this specific gene, inhibitors, and those inhibitors basically stop that protein from forming, and therefore the cancer cell can no longer grow and divide. So they're targeted therapies, and we're always improving these therapies to try and make more specific or targeted drugs that will stop the growth of those cancer cells. So that's three good treatment options. Now, in terms of managing skin cancer, the idea is that you want to treat it first, obviously, and make sure that you have got rid of it all. But if it does get to a point where it can't be treated or it can't be all removed, then you will have to get to the management phase. And that's where you're really looking at things like pain relief, um, things to minimize the suffering of the individual, palliative care, so making sure that someone is there taking care of them, emotional support as well is, is important. 
Now, if surgery has been performed or cancer has been removed, then it's very important that you do things like regular checks, blood tests, and go back to the doctor for skin checks and things like that. And that can help manage the potential for any future outbreak from occurring. All right, we're now going to take a look at the future direction for further research. And we have already mentioned one, which is targeted therapies, which is an area where there can be more research done on specific drugs that will stop proteins from forming within the cancer cell. So we're going to look at two others, including CAR T-cell therapy and immunotherapy. So CAR T-cell therapy is basically the function of removing T-cells from someone's blood. And if you remember from the immune system, T-cells are those cells that attack specific cells in your body that have certain markers. So the idea is that if we could program them to detect cancer cells, they could destroy it. And that's what CAR T-cells are. The idea is that they are removed from someone's blood, they are then modified. And the way that they're modified is they are little receptors to the outside of the cell, and those receptors are sensitive to the cancer cells in the body. Now, usually cancer conceals itself because it's just a normal cell in our body with normal markers. But there are some markers on the surface that are abnormal. And if our T cells could recognize them, they could destroy the cancer cell. And so these CAR T cells are modified, so they have the receptor to detect the cancer cell and then destroy it. And so this is always being improved, but there are some serious side effects with CAR T cell therapy, and that's where the research is heading at the moment. How do we make this effective without making the side effects so bad? All right, the last one we're going to look at is immunotherapy. And immunotherapy is designed to try and stimulate our immune system to recognize and destroy cancer cells. There can be several different types of immunotherapy used, but a few good examples are things like giving the individual drugs that help us to turn off a protein that stops your T cells from attacking other cells in the body. So usually your T cells don't want to destroy your cells. And that's a good thing. If they started to destroy your cells, they would attack any cell. But cancer cells are still part of your body. They're still your cells. And so if we can inhibit the function of this protein, then the T cells are able to attack the cancer cells as we want them to. And so that's just one function of immunotherapy that we can use. All right, just a quick recap of that information. For skin cancer, we have treatments like surgery, radiation, and targeted therapies. For management options, we have pain relief, palliative care, emotional support. And for future treatments, we once again have targeted therapies, CAR T-cell therapy, and immunotherapy. All right, let's move on. The next dot point under that inquiry question is evaluate the method used in an example of an epidemiological study. So before we look at an example, it's important to understand what an epidemiological study is and the different types. So what is epidemiology? Well, epidemiology is the study of disease in populations of humans or other animals, and specifically how, when, and where they occur. Now, the three main types we usually use are descriptive epidemiological studies, analytical, and intervention. And so we're going to go through each of those now, when to use them and what they entail. So the first one we're going to use is a descriptive study. And that's usually the first type of study that's completed when we're investigating the cause of a disease. 
We're usually looking for certain patterns, and by collecting information about age, gender, occupation, socioeconomic status, and so on, we can start to build a picture of what is going on. And that's the idea. We're trying to describe a situation. We're trying to gather information and figure out what's going on. So we're going to use that descriptive study. So an example of where you might do this, if you're trying to, say, determine the cause of lung cancer and you want to start to figure out why it's uh, in a population, you might collect data about the age of an individual, their sex, their smoking habits, their diet, their occupation, their drinking habits, um, and you might be looking at smokers versus non-smokers. So you're looking at collecting a lot of information to try and figure out the cause. The next type of study you would use, usually next in order, is an analytical study. And that's where you're doing an analysis of all the data that's been collected, not just from the single descriptive study, but from as many studies as you can to statistically analyze and develop a hypothesis that could be the likely cause of the disease. So now that you have enough information, you can start making some inferences about the likely cause and then develop your hypothesis. Now, there are a few different ways that you can go about doing an analytical study. The first thing you could do is something called a case control study. And a case control study is pretty simple to teach because you're looking at people that have the disease, the cases, against those that don't, or the controls. And what you're gonna be looking at is comparing their medical histories, for example, to determine the likely cause of a disease. So if you had you know, 50,000 people with lung cancer and 50,000 people without lung cancer, they're your case control subjects. Then you would have a look at their medical histories. Again, uh, how old are they now? What's their gender? Uh, what's their occupation? What are their smoking habits, their drinking habits? Everything that you collected in their descriptive studies, you're now compiling all that information into an analysis. Once you've got that analysis complete, you can start to draw those conclusions and make the hypothesis that it is something causing the disease. And that is an example of a case control study. Now, the next type of study can also be used if you have a hypothesis about the potential cause of a disease. And this is called a cohort study. And a cohort study will look at those individuals that are exposed to a risk factor versus those that are not exposed to the risk factor. They will often follow them over a long period of time, and they will then look to compare the outcomes of those individuals. Now, let's use another example to explain this. In 1947, there was a case control study done that linked smoking to lung cancer. And so the hypothesis was that smoking causes lung cancer. So to help them understand this a bit better, they set up a cohort study in 1951. And so what they did was study 40,000 doctors over a 10-year period. One of those groups were smokers, the test group. The other group were the non-smokers, and that's the control group. At the end of the study, it was found that the test group had a much higher incidence of lung cancer than the control group. The study also revealed that the greater number of cigarettes smoked daily, the greater the chance of dying from lung cancer. So this was a use of the case control and then the cohort study to show the link between smoking and lung cancer. The last type of study we're going to look at is the intervention study. And this is usually used when we're looking at the effectiveness of a new treatment or a public health campaign, or even looking at the certain way in which we can change the behavior of a population. 
For example, if we were to analyze the effectiveness of a quit campaign, the non-smoking campaign, that would be an intervention study. We're looking at the effectiveness of that campaign. Did it stop people from smoking? And have we improved the health outcomes of individuals? All right, the last thing I'm going to mention are the factors that are important to all epidemiological studies. And when you are evaluating any study, you really need to know these factors to know whether it was good or bad. And when we say good or bad, we really want to look at the validity, the reliability, and the accuracy of a study to make sure that we're getting something that can be used and referred to as you know, valid data for the population. So the first thing you want in any good study would be a large sample size, and that's going to improve your reliability. So the study we heard about before with the doctors, 40,000 doctors, that's a good number. So anything in the thousands is something you should be looking at. So if you are asked to design one in an exam, make sure you pick a number over a thousand. That's a large sample size. Now, the larger you get, the more reliable it gets. It's as simple as that. So the larger it is, the better it is. Now, the next thing you want is that you want the data to be collected over a long period of time, particularly if you're looking at things like smoking and lung cancer. Um, and other diseases that take time to form. And again, this improves validity because outcomes can change depending on time. So collected over a long period of time is important. Now we just went through before the factors that are important to actually collect, like data on age, sex, location, etc. And the more data you collect, the more that you can analyze. The next thing you want is that you want a collection of participants from the wider population. You want to make sure that you're getting as many people that represent the entire population as you can, and that helps to improve validity further. You want to make sure that the selection of those participants is also as random as possible. And that's where using a mathematical formula is beneficial in that you can assign certain numbers to individuals and then pick people at random in a population or a group. In terms of improving accuracy, just like we do in any given experiment, we want to make sure we're using the most precise equipment. So if we're measuring the, you know, the development of lung cancer, you're going to need some serious medical equipment to ascertain whether or not somebody's got lung cancer. And that's the same for any data we're collecting on health. The better your equipment and the more accurate it is, the better the results are going to be. And then finally, you want to make sure that the paper has been reviewed by people in the profession. And that is peer reviewing, someone who is working in that field. So for lung cancer, for instance, if you write a paper on lung cancer based on certain data or you publish a study, you want to make sure that the people that look at that study first are already in the field to make sure that your method was good or your method was valid and accurate and reliable. And the conclusions that were drawn were also reliable, valid, and accurate because they may interpret the data differently to you. And so these peer reviews are very important to make sure that it is agreed upon by experts in that field. Now, once they have agreed upon it, the idea is you want to make sure you're publishing in a reputable journal or book, something that people acknowledge as, you know, there was a rigorous scientific procedure to ensure the paper was valid. But there are still exceptions. Even studies that get through to the best journals can be overturned. 
All right, so all of those things we just spoke about are designed to also help us to minimize bias in an experiment or a study. And, and what is bias? Well, it's where you're deviating away from the truth or the real results. And that might be due to some choices that you make, how you decide to run your study. It could also be um, intentional, which is never a good thing, but it does happen in science. So a few examples of bias that we can find would be something like selection bias. And selection bias is an example where the participants you choose are not random and don't represent the wider population. And so I spoke about the fact that this is what you need in a good study. In poor studies, you don't have a good random selection. And so this is called selection bias. And an example would be if you're looking at the development of lung cancer, in say 18 year olds, you might not find the results that you would if you sampled the entire population. So selection bias is certainly important and something that you wanna take into account. The second type of bias we're going to look at is information bias. And that's where you have errors in the measurements or recording of information. Now this can be due to your interpretation of the certain measurements, but a better example for students would be that some people when they write down their answers, so participants in a study, often find it difficult to recall information in enough detail. And so when they write down their answers, you actually don't get enough information, you don't get the answers that you're looking for, and therefore the results might be skewed. So that's an example of information bias where you're not getting exactly what you want in the participant responses. Now the last one is something that I think is very prevalent in today's society, and that is confirmation bias. And that's where you basically find information that confirms your pre-existing beliefs without taking into consideration other aspects. So you might have a preconceived idea that smoking causes lung cancer before you've even done a study. And that might skew your opinion of how you're reading the data, what kind of interpretation you're making, and the conclusions that you're drawing. And so on social media, you often find this with things that are controversial, where an individual might you know, not believe in the efficacy of a vaccine or in the use of a certain medicine. And so when they go to, to Google, they type in information, they're just looking to confirm their bias. So if you type in, you know, vaccines don't work, you're going to get a whole bunch of websites that tell you that vaccines don't work. And you'll say, aha, there it is, there's my evidence. And they haven't taken into consideration both sides. So they haven't read, you know, the other papers that say that vaccines do work and then come to a conclusion. And so that's a big problem that we often have today, confirmation bias, where you're simply looking to confirm your pre-existing beliefs. And again, that's not a good thing in any given experiment or analysis. All right, so if you want a good example of an epidemiological study that you can read and analyze, if you look in the Nelson book, you'll find one on the Pima population, and that has actually already been completed for you, including the evaluation, so that's a good example. But more than likely in the HSC, they're going to give you a smaller version of a study or ask you to design one. And so I'm gonna upload uh, one question from the HSC, that is a good example of a question that you should be able to analyze with the information I've given you today and then create an evaluation. So what was good and bad about it? Or in scientific terms, was it valid, was it reliable, and was it accurate? Why or why not? And then make your judgment, your conclusion overall. Okay, that's what you're looking for there. Okay, well, I hope that was helpful today, guys. And if you ever need anything, 
to do with biotechnology in schools, make sure you check out STEM Reactor at stemreactor.com.au. And if you'd like to help support the show, you can always buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash HSC Biology Pod. See you next time.